0: This is season three, episode four of Sports Life Balance.
1: I suddenly felt something large swimming underneath me and the water was pitch black and I could feel it moving and I got a little scared and I thought, you know, maybe I should swim a little closer to shore. So I did. Yeah. And then <laughs> I, I moved a little closer, just sort of outside the wave break, thinking that maybe if it's a shark, I need to get out of the water. But I kept swimming because I thought, you know, if you can't make it for a workout <laughs> and you're going to swim on the Catalina Channel at night and you feel something moving underneath you, then you're not going to make it across the Catalina Channel at night. So you got to be aware of what's going on, but at the same time, you can't freak yourself out.
0: That's just a tease from best-selling author and extreme marathon swimming pioneer Lynn Cox. I'm John Moffat, and this very special episode of Sports Life Balance was recorded live at a bookstore, In Culver City, California. Well, thank you. Thank you all for joining us tonight for what will be an inspiring conversation with our special guest, Lynn Cox. Lynn first made a name for herself as a pioneer in ultra endurance swimming, breaking multiple world records throughout her career. But for each of her over 60, over 60, cross-channel swims around the world. She really pushed the boundaries of human performance and in the most extreme conditions imaginable. And in 1987, her swim across the Bering Strait, get this, from the United States to the Soviet Union up there near Alaska, was conceived by Lynn, completed by Lynn, and encouraged peace between the superpowers during the Cold War. An amazing feat. But Lynn is also a prolific author publishing several books about her world adventures. And we're here at Village Well Books and Coffee to celebrate the release of her seventh book, Tales of Al, The Water Rescue Dog. So here we go, swimmer, explorer, best-selling author, pioneer, Lynn Cox. Let's give her a warm welcome. And thank you, Lynn, for being here.
1: Thank you all for coming tonight. This is really
0: great. So, Lynn, let's talk about Tales of Al, the water rescue dog. You begin the book with a childhood memory, and it's the memory of swimming with your family dog, Beth. And tell me why this is a significant moment in your life.
1: Well, it was because my parents wanted us all to swim and even the family dog got to learn. But the thing was, was that they taught us in a way that was so supportive where my mom would hold me and then I'd kick and move and try to pull and pass me off to my dad. And then we'd reverse it. So eventually I would be able to move my arms and legs and start to swim. And I always felt supported. Mm -hmm. And as I got stronger, there was less support. Mm -hmm. So my parents did the same thing with the dog. And I realized that they were training Beth and teaching Beth, just like They had worked with my brother and sisters and me. And the thing is that I've heard about people that just take dogs or kids Uh or adults and throw them into the water and expect them to be able to swim. And so that set up this whole trauma thing for them. And I really wanted to talk about that's not the way that dogs or people should be trained to swim. And so part of my reason, too, for going to Italy to learn more about the water rescue dogs was to see if they were being forced to do what they were doing, if they were being forced to leap out of helicopters, or if they were afraid, or if they were afraid of jumping into the water. Mm. And I wondered if the owners and trainers had compassion for them Mm. or their goals were bigger than the dog. Because, you know, when you've grown up as an age group swimmer and then you've you've been competitive at the that the collegiate level and you at the Olympic level, you've seen parents that can sometimes have higher goals than the child or the adolescent or the teenager or, you know, the Olympic swimmer. And so, and I saw that. So yeah. I was really curious to see how are these dogs trained?
0: Hmm.
1: So That's... I went to Italy.
0: And, and also along the way, you always had dogs growing up and you really fell in love with dogs and swimming growing up. Didn't yes,
1: you? because... Well, actually, what was so interesting about Beth, she learned to swim from my folks. Mm -hmm. But when we'd go in the water with her in this place called Snow Pond in Maine, she would swim over to my mom and try to grab her by the arm and pull her into shore. So her instincts were always to save her. Not that my mom wasn't a good swimmer. She was an amazing swimmer. But in Beth's perception, you know, she needed to be rescued. Beth didn't do that to any of the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) And we weren't as good a swimmer as my mom. But I think that it was just amazing to see this inherent quality of of protecting and and wanting to make sure the family was okay.
0: Well, what then specifically got you interested about the Italian uh, rescue dogs?
1: I saw a video of a huge Newfoundland who was probably weighed about 160 pounds, leaping out of a helicopter into a lake in northern Italy. A helicopter? Out of a helicopter. And so I thought, you know, how does the dog do that? And how hard is that impact? Because at the Belmont Plaza pool, we used to be allowed to go off the 10 meter. And I hit the water wrong once and decided this is not going to be for me. (laughs) So how do you get the dogs to do this? But also, I mean, because we're swimmers, a lot of us. And so the dog's going down under the water. How does the dog know about holding its breath? Does that come naturally, or does mm-hmm. the dog learn it, or what happens? So I wound up connecting with a friend who had been connected with the U.S. Embassy in Rome, and that friend knew the military attache who put me in touch with the school in Italy because they worked and trained in conjunction with the Italian post guard. Uh-huh. So they invited me to come to Italy and watch them train with their dogs, and wow. it, was, it was really fabulous.
0: Well, I think that dogs can be a reflection of our best selves oftentimes and also a reflection of other other things, um, our imperfect selves. Perhaps Um, you write about the courage of these rescue dogs and how that courage that the dogs show we can use in our own life
1: exactly i think that there's this there's you know when you are become an athlete yourself and then you see a dog that's trained to become a super athlete you see all those parallels and you see the methods that are used that are positive or negative and what i saw in italy with the training of those dogs was that it was always positive reinforcement but the thing that i thought was so interesting was that they would work on a skill with a certain dog and then if the dog didn't get it, they would back down to the skill that they had done before, mm. and they would repeat it, and the dog would succeed. So another time, they'd come back, and they would then try that skill again, the new skill that they were trying to do. So what they were doing is reinforcing success and not failure. And I thought, this is really brilliant. But the other thing that was so surprising is that there were older dogs that were not always older dogs, but there were... Better dogs at rescuing people that knew the drill. Okay. That would teach the other dogs. Really. Yes, they were. They were like coaches. There was one dog wow. named Moss who was the star of the of the program who had rescued something like twenty people and and was involved in preventing rescues from happening. So she was the one that not only all the other dogs tried to get to Uh in in terms of that level. But she also was the one that helped show them what they needed to do.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. So you talk about that the Newfoundlands are huge. You said up to like 160 pounds, enormous, like a big human. Um, But what is their nature? What are they like? What are they good at? What are they not so good at?
1: They're really big, sweet dogs. I mean, that's generally what they are they just want to be with you they just want to go with you they're up for adventure they're very curious but if they are not engaged in stuff they can cause a lot of destruction (laughs) like big big holes dug and Mm -hmm. they can chew up things like any dog that doesn't get enough attention the dogs were initially bred in newfoundland they came initially the the Previous dogs, the Newfoundland, came on board ships from, fishing ships from okay. Spain and, and Europe. And then they reached Newfoundland. And then their dogs were specifically bred to help pull in the fishing lines to shore. And the also, nets? The nets. The nets. So the so they big, would, heavy, big nets. heavy nets. Big, heavy yeah. nets. And big ropes that they had to wrap their mouth around. Okay. And so the reason the Newfoundlands have really floppy lips uh-huh. and they kind of drool sometimes it's because they needed to breathe when they were pulling in the lines. So this was specifically done so the dog could breathe. And so they would pull in the lines, but they also had could, could pull in small carts. So if the fish went onto a cart or Mm. the whole catch of the day was on a huge cart, the dog would pull it, pull it along. The, the dogs are from what I saw really easy going, but there can be Newfoundlands that are very um, aggressive as well. Okay. You know, and they say that's the the mastiff that's in them, mm. but I had thought until probably two weeks ago that all Newfoundland's love the water, that it's part of what they do, and it turns out that no, wow, they're not. There is a line that doesn't like the water at all, and they stay as far from it as they can. In fact, I was talking to a woman last week who is involved with a Newfoundland Club of America. Mm-hmm and they're involved in, in doing water rescue training here in the United States with the dogs. And she said she had one six-month-old Newfoundland who was so smart, and when she throw the line out, the dog would pull the line in, because you're progressing and showing right, you what you right. need to do. So this six-month-old, which is pretty young to get it, usually it's around a two-year-old that can do it, Right. She she got it, but the 10-year-old that she had for the, ten, for the last 10 years she's been trying to get the 10 year old to do something and the dog just looks at her like forget it <laughs> but recently she decided that she was going to try to tow the line in so that was what was also interesting is these dogs are individuals yeah and they have things they love to do and things they don't love to do yeah and and in italy when i was with the school there the students, the dogs that were in the school, they were Labradors and Newfoundland's and Golden Retrievers, German Shepherds, Italian yeah. Spinoni, Leonbergers. They're all kinds of breeds of dogs, and they were all involved in learning to swim, putting on distance training like an athlete. Right. And right. and it was so interesting because it was like the novice swimmers, the puppies, were just learning to swim and doing you know short distances. Then the intermediate swimmers. We're doing longer distances Mm -hmm. and then the elite swimmers, some of them, like the Newfoundlands, were swimming up to a mile with their
0: owner. Oh my gosh, wow. So
1: yeah, and the and somebody was asking me, you know, why is it important to have dogs on the beach in Italy? You know, you've got lifeguards, why do you need a dog? Well, the Newfoundlands can pull in six people at a time. And the Labradors can pull in two or three people, German Shepherds, two people, Golden Retrievers, right. two people. So it makes a huge difference in the amount of people, but also you've got the dogs that are now watching the water, that are alert to what's going on, mm-hmm. along with their owner, who has volunteered to do this, so, and, and who is also lifeguard trained.
0: Right, right. So it's, it's, it's another, set of, another set of eyes on the water, first and foremost, but it's also muscle out, on, out in the water right. to, to really help. Uh, execute the the rescue <clears throat> you know fascinating tidbit that i learned from your book is that lewis and clark had a newfoundland on their expedition westward westward
1: yes his name was seaman and he was uh Lewis's dog and companion, but he was also so involved in protecting the expedition, the Corps of Discovery, that was heading west to discover the whole west coast of the United States or the Pacific Northwest. And there were times where seamen defended them from a bear and from Indian attacks and all sorts of other things. And so he, Lewis, became Meriwell, Meriwether Lewis, and seamen became
0: best friends. Wow. That's that, like, super fascinating. Uh, let's talk specifically about Al a little bit. <clears throat> and Al's, Al's a girl dog, by the way. Um, but in particular about Al, what captivated you? What struck you when you first met Al?
1: When I first met Al, I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> she's got to be so hard to train because she was so excited and so exuberant. Donatella came and picked me up at the airport. and and Al was in a crate in the back for safety and it had been all a big crate a big crate in the back of a sport utility so she opened the crate and al drop jumped out and Donatella right away was telling her to sit and stay but she couldn't contain herself she was wiggling and jumping and so excited and she was two years old wow. so by two years old she's supposed to be calmer but she wasn't and so I was just thinking this is going to be really interesting <laughs> this is really going to be fun because Donatella was president vice president of the school and she had taught so many owners and, and instructors and dogs. Mm-hmm. She was a dog whisperer. She really knew how to read them and right. how to t- train them and help them out. But her own dog was not listening to her and it was really hard on her. You know, it's like the coach's kid. You know, that doesn't, <laughs> the, coach's kid. the coach's kid that doesn't really want to be there and doesn't really want to swim. She wanted to be there. She wanted to participate in everything and that was really hard because Donatello was trying to get her to focus. Yeah. You know, the ADD dog. You Know, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I, I can relate in many ways, but um, but yes, I'm more than familiar with that swimmer that would rather mess around and distract everybody else rather than swim back and forth and train. Um, so you mentioned that Al was uh, slow to learn, but uh, I believe you mentioned that she was also stubborn and distractible, and
1: she was her own dog and and I don't want to spoil the story because no, there is there are things that occur during this and I think the key is that Donatella was totally patient with her and understood that maybe in her own time just like that 10 year old Newfoundland that maybe in Al's own time she will understand what she's being asked to do but Donatella was trying to do everything and also trying to maintain her calmness, and it was really,
0: really hard. Really hard on Donatella, because yeah. she was feeling the pressure as well. Well, I'm going to leave everyone with a bit of a cliffhanger here then, and we'll uh, we'll move on. I want to ask you a little bit about your background, because, Lynn, it's I believe it's really important for people to understand your background in your life, the context of your life, when reading Al or any of your other books. Um, when you were little, you lived back east, but then... Your father um, had an opportunity here in Southern California. So you moved here when you were how old? 12 years old. You were 12. You were 12. And you found yourself back in the 70s. The Southern California swim program, this this was the mecca. This was the epicenter for the United States, for sure, if not for the world. The greatest swimmers in the world were right here. And you found yourself smack dab in the middle of them training in Belmont Plaza, which was back then a state of the art pool. And you were also, your coach was the legendary Olympic coach, Don Gambrel, who by the way, was the head Olympic coach for my first Olympic team.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So,
0: so I mean, you must've pinched yourself or like, what were the workouts like for crying out loud? It must've been quite a culture shock for you
1: it was huge although i had had good coaching in new hampshire we would had ben merritt who had been the harvard coach who'd come to new hampshire every day and we'd swim with him for 4 hours a day and my parents realized that my brother and i and my two sisters had potential so they decided that we could move to california i mean we chose as a family to move to california and my folks decided that they really needed to find a good program for us yeah so we found it they found it and and it was fantastic, but at the same time, you know, to, to come from New Hampshire and be an okay swimmer, and then suddenly at the Belmont Plaza pool, and you're pretty much the last person in the lane, mm-hmm. you know, and you're just like, oh my gosh. And then you're looking across the lane, and you're seeing swimmers from all around the world right. that are the best in the world.
0: The proverbial big pond.
1: Yes. And I was both encouraged and discouraged, because it was mm-hmm. just like, I kept thinking, you know, maybe one day I can be like them but also when I couldn't even make the intervals. <laughs> that was discouraging. And I didn't realize that when I first started swimming under Gamble that there were anything called intervals. So I was just swimming the whole time of the workout without stopping because I couldn't get there in time to take a breath. You know. So eventually he stopped me and said, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, I'm swimming. I can't keep up with him. He's like, you got to stop. I'm like, well, yeah, but I can't keep up with him. It's like, stop and rest. Then you can swim faster. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, well, then what
0: happened when you started doing true interval training?
1: I started getting faster. Yeah, it was amazing. Don was on to something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was amazing. But but the other thing is that what was so great about Don Gamble was that He recognized that at the end of the workout, I was swimming faster than at the start. And everyone else was like, I'm done. I'm ready to get out. Uh You know, I've done a hard workout. And I'm like, I'm ready to go now. So he was the one that said, why don't you think about swimming in the ocean? Oh, okay. So he was the one that said, why don't you swim the Seal Beach Rough Water Swim? So when I was 14, I did. I Mm -hmm. entered the women's age group, came in third in the men's and first in the women's at age 14. Your first ocean swim. And then I swam the two mile and I got first in that. And then I swam the one mile and I got third in that. So it was like, it was really great to not be last in the lane.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And- <laughs> it's like, okay, I can do something kind of better. And so that day I heard about the group of kids that were training to swim Catalina. They'd been training for a year. And so I asked Don to talk to Ron Blackledge, the coach of the Seal Beach team. And okay. they said I could train with them. So I trained in the ocean with them for six or eight weeks And then we went to Catalina Island and started at midnight and swam for Palos Verdes and as,
0: as a, as a relay for, for no, no? as individuals, individuals. So, but you swam as a group.
1: We swam as a group, which I would never recommend again because Mm -hmm. initially we trained together, but you swim at different paces. And so Mm -hmm. for me, um, because I'd had the great coaching, I was much faster than the other swimmers. So I get ahead up to like a mile ahead, and then I'd tread water and wait because you can't hold onto the boat. So at one point, Ron Blackledge and my folks, my dad actually said, you know, we've agreed it's okay if you leave them behind, the team behind, and go and try to break the record because you're on record pace. And so before wow. we had started the swim, we had agreed we'd swim together.
0: Yeah, well. So we did. You only have so many following boats and...
1: Well, there were two Long Beach lifeguards who had crossed the Catalina Channel many times Mm -hmm. in races. So they were going to peel away from the other boats and row for me to get me across. Okay. But I had agreed to swim with the team. They had let me train with them. They had let me be with them. They had let me do the swim with them. So I tread water and Uh wait for them and then continue swimming. It took us 12 hours and 36 minutes.
0: In 50...
1: In 57 to 59-degree water. Oh, ouch. And it was a really long swim, and my friends decided they would never swim a channel again. (laughs) But I decided that, you know, we made it, and maybe I could do the English Channel.
0: Well, that was certainly a good indication of your potential. It
1: (laughs) it helped because, you know, when I was 9 years old, A mother that I knew on the team in Manchester, Mrs. McMulligan, told me that she saw me swimming and said, I think one day you're going to swim the English Channel. So since nine years old, that had stuck in my head. And then when I'd done the Catalina Channel at age 14, then I thought, okay, I need to talk to mom and dad. Will they help me do the English Channel? And they said yes, and went back to Don and he helped me train along with Ron Blackledge. And I set the goal of breaking the world record for men and women. And um, because that was what was going on in the pool beside me. You know, when you've trained and the people you've trained with, when you see how amazing the swimmers are and you know you have potential, you want to be like them. So you want to do everything you can to reach that level in your powers and so gamble gave me that way of adapting the olympic training Mm -hmm. into the ocean so instead of doing 10 100 repeats on a descending interval i do 10 one mile repeats on a descending interval you know or you know the same kind of stuff (laughs) but but it was like, okay, you have to remember that at the end of a channel swim, usually the tides are changing. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to swim faster at the end than you were at the beginning. So you want to train the way that you're actually going to do the of swim. Course, yeah. So, yeah, you're going to be tired, but, you know, there are so many people that attempt the English Channel way back when I did it and even before. Yeah. And even now, where they'll get within a mile of Cape Grenade. Or Wissant, or the Belgian coast, and the tide changes, and it just sweeps them back out.
0: Yeah, and there's in in the the ocean is immense. The tides are immense. The power is immense. Um, you can't fight that. In fact, um, you know, I a, a, a bunch of the people that I swim with on the in, in here in Southern California are here today, um, and and I think that all of us agree that there's something about surrendering yourself to that immensity, to the critters, to, you know, to all the forces within the ocean, you have to, that's where the reset happens. That's for us, I think there's a, there's a Zen state that open water swimmers are able to achieve. You've heard, obviously people have talked about the runner's high, but there's also an open water swimming high. There's a, there's a force that you tap into.
1: There is, but at the same time, when you're going for a world record, you're not zending all the time. No, of course you're, not. <laughs> you're, you're, like, you're like pushing all the time. Yeah. And I was so lucky because Reg Brickell was my pilot. And so it's like you know a horse with a jockey. The horse wins, but without the jockey, they wouldn't do this. Yes. So the same thing with the pilot for the English Channel. He had taken the most channel... World record-breaking swimmers across, and it just happened by chance because we just went through this list of names, and he was the first man to answer the telephone when my mom and I were. In this focusing. is for the English this channel. This is for the yeah, English right, channel. Right. So Reg picked up the phone and then invited us over for some tea, and sat down and said, "You know, this is my goal. You know, I want to break the world record." And he was just like, "Okay, really?" <laughs> and so... <laughs> yeah, but
0: everybody looks at you like that if you say something out absurd.
1: Yeah, well, it also to be, is to the normal but when person. you're 14, when you're 15 years old. That that's sort of what they think. Right. But then again, when he heard about the training that I'd done, heard about how extreme, like you know, the group of people yeah. that I trained with heard about my coaching, that gave it credibility. Yeah. And, and he also heard about how he was training in Folkestone and off Dover for the channel. So he asked me my pace time and he asked me stuff that was really specific. And so I'm thinking, you know, he really knows what he's talking about. This is fantastic because, <laughs> you know, he is the best guy. So, um, well, you
0: want, you want your captain to be a teammate too, right? Not right, just to- but also
1: the captain of the boat is in a huge position where he has to decide whether or not to pull you. There's an observer along mm. on the swim who's watching you to make sure you're safe, but at some point the captain and the observer talk, and if you're looking like you're flailing or you're going into hypothermia, yeah. they pull you out of the water. So you're friends, but they're also in a position where they have to, you know, Pull back from that friendship and realize that if you're in danger, you're out of the water.
0: Yeah, well, I mean.
1: Yeah, but it's not always easy to discern that.
0: No, of course not, because you're going to want to keep going. And as athletes, especially as uh, an endurance athlete trying to break world records, you push yourself to limits that the body is not necessarily designed to be living in.
1: Right. But also, if you've done the training in the wintertime in 48 or 50 degree water, then you've already started to adapt or acclimate to the water temperature. So the pushing then becomes, how can you maintain that pace for all all that time? And then at the end, when you see shore and the currents pushing you backwards and you thought you were going to finish now, now you have to start sprinting. And that is yeah. the hardest part where you're just like, okay, this could just all go away right now. And so that's when you have to draw on everything. And mm. there's it's just you're fighting. Yeah. <laughs> you're really working. You understand. You know, you know what it was like to get to that other side before everyone else. The same thing's going on, but you've got the force of nature pulling around around you and you've just got to keep going.
0: Humbling.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I wanna ask you about your second book, Grayson. Oh. It's a wonderful book. It's a story about a different type of mammal. Not it was a story about a baby gray whale. And to me, it's almost like a true life fable. And um, this sorts and this happened when you were just a teenager as well, right? When you're fourteen. Right. Seventeen. 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 So you're a high schooler, training. So, yeah.
1: I was a high schooler. I was training to go back and swim the Catalina again, and I was at that point trying to go back and and swim it solo and go for the record. Okay. So I was working off Seal Beach primarily, but also Huntington Beach, Laguna Beach, and all sorts of other places. Mm-hmm. But my main training area was swimming between the pier and Seal Beach right. and either one of the jetties.
0: Right, right. So, so you were doing that usual swim, and it was it was it was still dark. It was before dawn, correct? Right.
1: I was a, what was
0: your first inkling that there was something happening?
1: Well, I suddenly felt something large swimming underneath me, and the water was pitch black, and I could feel it moving. And I got a little scared, and I thought, you know, maybe I should swim a little closer to shore. So I did. Yeah. And then <laughs> I, I moved a little closer, just sort of outside the wave break, thinking that maybe if it's a shark, I need to get out of the water. Yeah. But I kept swimming because I thought, you know, if you can't make it through a workout... And then you're going to swim on the Catalina Channel at night, and you feel something moving underneath you,
0: right. then you're
1: not going to make it across the Catalina Channel at night. So you got to be aware of what's going on, but at the same time, you can't freak yourself out.
0: Well, yeah, it's really easy to give yourself the creeps. Oh, absolutely. When you're in the ocean during the daylight, much less <laughs> when it's
1: dark. It was giving me the creeps. <laughs> but So I swam as fast as I could back to the pier, and there was an old fisherman that worked on the pier named Steve who would watch over me while I was swimming. And he explained that I had a baby whale following me, that it had been lost. Oh, my gosh. And um, it couldn't find its mom, and I could not swim to shore because it might follow me and go to shore and ground itself. Oh, and beach itself. Yes, and then die. So he said, you just need to stay out here and help him find his mom.
0: And And... (laughs) Okay, so the sun is rising at some point during yes. all of this, but the water is cold.
1: The water is cold. It was March, so it's probably mid 50s at the most.
0: Okay, let me, let me, for those who don't understand what mid 50s feels like, <laughs> mid, water in the mid 50s, you go in and it takes your breath away. The normal human could only survive for a matter of 15, 20, 30 minutes before getting hypothermia. And
1: no, actually, everyone's different, and it depends on if you've eaten something. Well, I something. get it in five minutes. Okay, well, then that's, you know, and when you <laughs> said the normal swimmer, I object to that, because it implies... <laughs> normal the, the, human.
0: Did I say swimmer? <laughs> or I meant human. No, but also
1: not the normal, because, you know, if you look at these open-water swimmers, it's not about being abnormal. It's really about being trained.
0: Well, this right? Yes.
1: Yes, because they they're, say the normal person. Well, that implies that we're really abnormal. Well... <laughs>
0: I would like to make the argument that there is an element of abnormalcy to breaking world records. Oh, yeah, you're you're right. And to aspiring to all of these grand adventures that you have aspired to, but... But who wants to be mainstream? I mean, (laughs) who wants
1: to do all their life in the pool or the backyard pool? What kind of adventure is that? I mean, you've been there. You've seen the black line for a long time. And you've been probably cheese-grated your hands on the lane lines, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a sense of absolute freedom when you're out there
0: there is there is and it's it's um i'm glad that i've rediscovered it thanks to the pandemic and thanks to pools being closed here
1: and to friends in southern
0: california and and to all the friends that we're able to experience these things with Yeah. right um so let's talk a little bit about how this story with grayson who is the baby gray whale how did you eventually how did it come to an end because what do you do with a baby gray whale? How big is it, 10? 17 feet long. Holy moly. It
1: was, it was coming up from Mexico. It probably had been born a few months before. Yeah. So it was totally reliant on his mom for survival. Right. And their course was to go up the coast of California and up to Oregon, Washington, and up into yeah. the Bering Strait. So apparently, this is not uncommon, that the baby whale can get distracted and suddenly is lost. And that's why you hear about... Baby whale suddenly in Huntington Beach Harbor area or other places because they they got separated. So Steve told me that I just need to stay out there with the baby whale, but he didn't stay in one place. You know he started swimming, and I had been told my my folks never like go beyond the pier. So the baby whale started swimming. Your folks being your parents. My parents. Yeah. Yeah. don't like don't swim because I was working out on my own back then it was what it was okay to do that so I was swimming beyond the pier and going further out and getting out sort of near the oil island off seal beach which no longer is there right right but, but I had gone all the way out there and I'm thinking this is kind of like a mile and a half it was something. about a mile and a half out there exactly but and the,
0: and you were basically the you were following the whale or the whale was following no, you
1: I was both I'd go, he started going out, I followed him, he swam around me, we were out there for three, four hours. The lifeguard boat, at that time of year, and and the relationship between the Long Beach lifeguards and the Seal Beach was that the Long Beach lifeguard boats would come and patrol Seal Beach. And so they came over and checked on me. And again, it was just like, you know, Lynn, you might want to get closer to shore because you're not very visible out here. And I'm thinking, yeah, I get it. (laughs) It's <laughs> like this is not smart, but I've got this baby whale that's lost.
0: Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with some more sports life balance. I want to tell you about our partners, Roka. For years I've been wearing their industry leading wetsuits, goggles, and swimsuits. But Roka also makes amazing eyeglasses and sunglasses, and they're designed for those of us who like to push the limits but want to look good doing it. I'm wearing a pair right now, and their sunglasses perform flawlessly even during these extremely bright summer days. And every pair, they're incredibly light, and they won't slip off your face even while you do the most intense activities. And the best part is you can try them on at home before you buy them. Roka will send you your choice of four frames so that you can see them on your own face, and then all you do is purchase your favorite. So go to roca.com, that's roka.com, that's rok acom and enter code SLB, as in Sports Life Balance. That's just three letters, S-L-B, to save 20% on all your orders. And that's for anything on their website. And now let's get back to the episode with Lynn Cox.
1: And again, it was just like, you know, Lynn, you might want to get closer to shore because you're not very visible out here. And I'm thinking, yeah, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) It It's like, this is not smart, but I've got this baby whale that's lost. So what they did is they started radioing the people they knew all along the area. Then the fishermen started calling each other and then they started sighting gray whales moving north because there were other gray whales moving north. Right. And then the baby whale would disappear, and I decided he was the son of the gray whale, so he would be called Grayson. So Grayson, yeah. Then I started feeling more connection to him because by then it was like four and a half hours to the swim. Oh my gosh. And finally, um, there was a happy ending. Um, I don't know if I should spoil it or not, but it, there was a good resolution. And um, the mom was able to find the baby. And Beautiful story. it was really incredible. Actually, the book has now been translated into 23 languages. And I think it's because, you know, it's a story not just about the whale and about relationships, but also about trust mm-hmm. and also about the beauty of the ocean. Yeah. And, and being with this little critter that was so big.
0: <laughs> right. And, and the mama was. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Really big. I mean, it's. It's startling the first few times that you see a dolphin, when, because dolphins are big too, but I can't imagine a whale.
1: No, never, never
0: I, seen a whale out swimming.
1: I've swum with dolphins a number of times in New Zealand and different places yeah. along the California coast. And actually, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the Alameda Bay in Long Beach area with my friend. And a mother and baby dolphin popped up about 10 feet away from us. And then it went down under the water. And then another mother and baby popped up. Mm. And even then, I mean, I've been around these animals before, but it was like, okay, I guess it's going to be okay. You know, and then they just, then you watch them swim off and you just think, all right, this is one of the reasons why I'm out here. Yeah. And we've
0: had these experiences several times, all of us out there together. We had one just, was it last weekend? Um, Yeah. It, it, it,
1: it, it, it makes it special. It's a mystery. It's a surprise. And you know that they knew you were there all along. <laughs> of course. And I also get the
0: feeling that they're messing with you a yep, little bit.
1: Probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, <clears throat> so we talked a little bit about your world records. But to me, um, I read, read your books. And you're also an explorer at heart. What, um, what drives you to venture into that obs- the uncertainty, the the danger, potential danger, and facing your fears.
1: I think it's curiosity. I think it's what's on the other side. How can I get there? But I also think it's all about what are we capable of doing? You know, if you train so hard and you reach a certain level, If you do something else, what more can you do? Where else can you go? I mean, that's sort of been my story where first you do a swim, then you break a world record, then you use the swim to explore to do a swim nobody's ever done before, and then you go from there to use a swim to connect countries and other countries and a political reason behind it. So there's, instead of just stuck with swimming a channel over and over again, which I think is amazing that people can do that but i think there's more to life than that i think that we change we evolve we want to do new things in our life and for me i really enjoy you know going to italy and seeing different parts of the country and trying italian food from a different region and learning about the culture and the music and seeing something new and there are people that are really happy to be home and i love to come home i love to be around my friends but I also like to learn about different parts of the world and perspectives, because our way of thinking isn't the only way. You know, you, right. yeah. you I mean, as an Olympic swimmer, you know, just going to the Olympics, the, the extraordinary people that you met and the connections you made and the conversations you've had. Is, and and you, because of that, you probably have expanded your world of thought.
0: Oh, oh, oh absolutely. It's hard to be... It's, it's easy to be enemies with a, a country like, for example, the Soviet Union. But it's very, very difficult to be enemies with these individuals who are wonderful people who are just like us.
1: Right, right, and it's and it, and you have similar goals, you have the similar yep. understanding, and you want the same things. Right, mm-hmm. but you might just do things differently, and sometimes doing those different things differently makes sense—that it's better than what you were doing, you mm-hmm. know.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to be able to talk to you about each one of your fantastic swims um, as you chronicled in Swimming to Antarctica. I read it for a second time. Um, fascinating book, fascinating book, uh, an anthology, literally an anthology of all your adventures. But when you conquer things like swimming the Strait of Magellan, I remember as a kid, like reading about the Strait of Magellan and how treacherous it is, or surviving a one-mile swim in Antarctica in 32-degree water. I mean, you're... you're like, I, I can't even begin to wrap my head about around that. Um, how, do, how did those things, those extreme feats of human endurance, transform you? And what do you find out about yourself by doing those?
1: Great questions. I actually was intrigued with the Strait of Magellan because the first thought is you know, ships can't get through there. There are so many ships that get wrecked. Wouldn't it be amazing to be a human being to be able to do something like that? How could that be done? That was the underlying thought. How could this be possible? And so then you start doing the research and you start reaching out to people and you start talking to the Chilean Navy and the Coast Guard and you talk about fishermen that work and live in that area. And then you see what the currents are doing and then you think, okay, The water's 42 degrees. The coldest I've ever swum in is 48. Can I go down to 42? Or, you know, actually I didn't know it was 42 until I got there. And the first day I get into the water, it was just like I could just get into the water. I was so, like, unbelievable to realize I've flown halfway around the world in a way to go from California to Chile, to the tip of Chile, and then wonder, am I gonna be able to do this? So the thought was, okay, If I can get in the water for 20 minutes and just be here, that's 20 minutes. Okay. So tomorrow, I've made 20 minutes. I'm going to go and swim for 20 minutes. Did that. Okay. Now I made it for 20. The swim is three miles across, probably with all the current. So that's going to take me around an hour. I've got to be able to do at least an hour in this. So I gradually talked myself into doing it. But the other thing that was so amazing was that there were people that lived along shore that saw this crazy American swimming in the Strait of magellan I mean they were it was like there was there was a coach back then, more an advisor, John Sonicson, who was walking the beach with me, and people would come out of the, their homes and just start walking with him, and John didn't speak much Spanish, and they didn't speak much English, but they'd be saying, what's going on here? And so he tried to explain that I was training to swim the straight, and because of that, suddenly they were inviting us into their homes. Oh, my god! You know, so here, yeah. come in and have some hot chocolate. Let me play Spanish guitar for you. Let me show you what our life is like here in Punta Arenas. And, I mean, those things are so valuable. I mean, it's just to be able to have those connections instead of just going through as a tourist. Yeah, yeah, And then to then attempt the swim and realize that you have the Coast Guard from Chile who are the most amazing pilots that can get ships through that narrow opening right. without them running aground or breaking up and having them as your support team. So it's not only just about me doing a swim, it's really about finding the best support team who then gets get excited about being part of it. So that was a lot about that swim. The swim that I did in Antarctica was really about, okay, I did 42, you know, what would be more possible? What would be more difficult? 42 degrees. 42. So I was talking to my friend, Caroline Alexander, who'd been on the U S triathlon team. And in fact, my sister was a swimmer and her husband had been a coach for the U S pentathlon team. So, Caroline was a very fine swimmer. And so she had just, maybe four or five years ago, had written, at that point, had written a book called Endurance about Shackleton and his efforts when they went to the Antarctic Mm -hmm. to come across the ocean, I can't remember which one it was, to Elephant Island. And because of Shackleton's leadership, all of his crew survived. And so we were talking about a book that she was working on. So I said, well, what's the water temperature in sub-Antarctica? where Elfin island is because mm-hmm. i thought maybe that would be a really cool swim to do and she said well you know of course you'd know 35 degrees in the summertime and like okay so what's the water off antarctica in the summertime 32 degrees so then i thought well maybe i could do that instead you know it's 10 degrees colder but maybe it's possible and then i started thinking well that's awfully hard to swim in that maybe i could wear a very light wetsuit you know, and that way it would make it increase the chance of swimming 200 meters. Mm-hmm. And then I thought some more about it and thought, well, if I wanted to do this, I really think I'd rather do a mile. All right, so that would be a real challenge. But wearing a wetsuit, it's not about the human ability; it's yeah. about the technology. It's
0: about the technology, right, right, right. And you're
1: you're you're getting warm from it. You're getting flotation. You're all these things. So I started thinking about how could I train to do a swim in Antarctica. And that became my big goal. And the other part of this though, is that for many years I was being researched at the University University of California, Santa Barbara, at the University of London to figure out how I was able to maintain my core temperature, keep it elevated in Mm -hmm. cold water.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about that in just a second, but first I want to talk to you specifically about your swim from the United States to the Soviet Union. What made you aspire to go outside the realm of just human achievement and endurance and into the realm of global geopolitical politics?
1: Well, actually, it was 1976, and at the time, it was at the height of the Cold War. Yeah. And my dad had been in the World War II, and he'd been a corpsman. And so he hadn't had a gun. And he was not about fighting. He was about peace. And so yeah. he was the one who said, why don't you think about swimming across the Bering Strait? Because the United States is 2.7 miles away from the Soviet Union. The two superpowers are side by side, the neighbors. So he was the one that said, why don't you think about doing that? So in 1976, I looked at him and said, there's no way. I mean, there's no way I can swim on water that cold. I don't even know what the temperature is. And there's no way that I can get political approval to do it. So he said, well, how do you know until you start looking at it? And And so I spent 11 years working on it. Wow. And every day for 11 years, trying to reach out to people, trying to contact people, trying to make any kind of connection to figure out how to get the border open, because that's what it meant doing. It yeah. also meant how do you train for really cold water? So, this was before the swim in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, I was writing to people all over the place to just find out what the water temperature was. It was so,
0: it ended up being about 30
1: 38. Eight. 38. Okay. And at that point, that was just way below anything i had done i mean 42 to 38 doesn't sound like much but i think it's the difference between yeah. going to the moon and mars four, four I mean, degrees is a lot it's you a lot know you know yeah, even yeah. when you're in 60 or 64 you know there's a huge difference right and i also wonder that when you start getting into the colder temperature if there's more of an exponential effect on the body if you actually cool down even faster when you get into a lot cooler water i don't know that but I know that the, the sensation, the effect on the body is a lot more severe. And your reactions and the way you swim is a lot faster.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're trying to go faster, but actually you're not because you're not able to grasp the water in the same way. You're not able to feel it that way. Right. You know, your hands feel like blocks. Right. So I wound up training and kept kept contacting people and finally was able to get approval to do it. And um, it 10, was... 11 years. 11 yeah. years. But but it came from the highest level of the, of the Soviet government. It finally came from Gorbachev. And by him getting behind it, then the doors opened. And it was also at a time, by coincidence, because it had taken 11 years to get to that point, but it was a policy that he was portraying, which was glass nest, Yeah. openness. Yeah. So he understood that the swim would open the border, that it was about openness, and that it might help to bridge these different distances. And that's what it did. It, wow. he, it was really incredible.
0: Very unique time in history that you probably, that was a window, a very narrow window with the with perspective of history that anybody would be able to do that, like we couldn't do that now.
1: Well, you couldn't do it now, but it did open a window And I was told after the Bering Strait swim that that influenced people in Germany to feel like they could take the Berlin Wall down because they saw the, they used to call this the ice curtain Uh that existed between the US, Alaska, and the Soviet Uh Union, Siberia. And there were, you know, it was a border. And if anyone, past the border, they were arrested in the Soviet Union, and I suspect so in the United States, but I don't know that for sure. So once the border opened, there were different relations that opened as well, and people saw the swim in the Bering Strait as another opening, as a possibility that other things could happen. Um, So I would go on and do a swim in the Spree River. I'd go to Germany to get permission to swim from east to west Berlin, and went to the British, the Americans, the Germans, and the Russians to try to get permission. Actually, at that point, it was the Soviets. Yeah. And I got permission, but when I actually did the swim, it was about three months after, maybe four months after the wall had come down. But the, the idea then was to celebrate the opening. And when I did the swim, I had to have the Stasi, the secret police from East Berlin in boats with me Because the Spree River had been mined. And it also had razor wire in it, where if people from the East Berlin side jumped into the water and tried to swim across, they would hit this razor wire. Oh, my heavens. So the boats were patrol, the patrol boats that they used to patrol the waterway to keep the East Germans from going to the West were suddenly now my support crew along with the West Germans to make the swim. So it was incredible to be able to do it. And there was a moment, though, that where on the the banks below the Reichstag, you could see 13 crosses, and those were for the people that had tried to jump in and swim across. So it was like incredible sadness because of all that, but at the same time celebrating that things were going to change. Things were
0: changing. Wow. But
1: to get to that point of getting permission and all that, I had to sneak into East Berlin with my West Berlin press crew and all sorts of stuff that went on that were, it was crazy, but it worked. And, um,
0: <laughs> like I said before, adventures, amazing <laughs> adventures, right? Lynn is much more than an endurance swimmer.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> I mean, you. We,
0: we know that, but, uh, when just talking to you about these, these things, it's, it's um, it's really fascinating and what amazing feats. Um, We were talking about this in a more abstract way a little bit earlier, but you have a rather, let's let's try to say, a a, a unique physiology where um, you write about in Swimming in the Sink, you write about how you've had a battery of tests and that that you underwent so that scientists could try to understand how that you, Lynn Cox, survives in conditions that would literally kill. Right. A person, if they were just to fall into the drink, even if they're good swimmers, it would kill them. Yeah.
1: I think that, yeah, again, it's all about, you know, what is the mindset of somebody that falls into really cold water? Mm-hmm. What? How much clothing do they have on? What's their body type? Mm-hmm. Did they eat before they were in the water? Do they have high-calorie content that they can use to burn? Right. So there are those components of, of you know, remember when the the aircraft went down in the Hudson River, and there was a man from the Coast Guard saying that at the most, any of those people would survive for 20 minutes. And I got upset, because I Mm. thought... How can you determine somebody's survival time? You don't know what they're capable of doing. And, and, you know, if they've got clothing on and they've got air between their clothing, Mm. that'll act as an insulator. If they can keep their head above water, they're going to have a lot longer survival time than if they let their face go in because it's a high blood Uh flow area. uh For me... I was able to swim in these very cold waters because Dr. Keating was doing research on, on me at the University of London. Yeah, And he was finding that if I swam in water 50 degrees, I was able to increase my body temperature a degree or two.
0: Voluntarily.
1: Right, right. In fact, there was one test that I did where I sat in the laboratory, which was awful, in a cold water jacuzzi where the water was 42 degrees. Right. right. And I was told to just sit there. And after two hours of swimming, of, of sitting, my temperature had increased a degree. So part of it, I think, is the mind. Part of it is the body. And then before I went to do the swim in Antarctica, uh, there was so much, like, you know, you, the boats are going in. People are organizing stuff. People, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of going on. So I asked my friend Barry Bender to sort of be in in charge of all that and I went back to a cabin and started to meditate about what I was going to do right and then I had my doctor friend take my temperature my normal temperature was about 97 it had gone up to 102 so I think that my body was thinking my mind was going okay you're getting into real cold water and you need to be ready and my body was reacting that way
0: is it is it something innate to you and your body to be able to do that? Or do you think it's a combination of that and your pure will to get through it and your body figuring out a way to survive it?
1: I think it's the mind-body connection that oh. you can you can do so much more with your body and mind in sync. But also, physiologically, I was suited for the cold water. You know, right. I, I have extra body fat. I also, when I was swimming, was swimming at 80% max. So that meant that I was really creating heat as I was swimming. Mm -hmm. The other thing they found out about me is that I was able to close down the blood flow to the peripheral area. Everyone does. They close it down. But at some point, they start to open it up to allow the blood to circulate through their body. And by doing that, the cool blood on the outside starts to go into the core, and that causes your temperature drop. My body worked differently. It just closed down the skin and the blood flow on the surface to make it act like a wetsuit. And it did not... Well, they said minute blood flow so that cold blood didn't didn't come into the core at least it trickled in yeah yeah but it didn't come in like you there's a certain point where it starts to surge in and people Mm -hmm. really their temperatures drop so at the end of a swim though for anyone who's been in cold water that becomes a risky or even maybe possibly dangerous part because you've stopped exercising and now you vasodilate, you open up mm-hmm. all the peripheral areas, and all that cold blood on the outside starts to go in. All your internal and,
0: organs start getting cold. Right. Yeah.
1: And so that's when you see, when somebody's finished a swim, you'll start seeing them shiver, maybe. And you might see them shiver harder and harder because... Oh, I, we,
0: we do it every time we get out, <laughs> practically, except <laughs> we're standing on the beach shivering.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 So... One of the things I did for the swim in Antarctica that I do now is that I drank four ounce glasses of really warm water because I thought, think of your body as a thermos. Yeah. And you want to heat the thermos before you go into the water. So I would drink not huge amounts of water, but for, because also there's a diuretic effect of being in the cold water. Right. Your blood volume is trying to reduce itself so it can move in and protect the vital organs. So it may not be a great idea, but I found that it worked for me to drink, for me, mm-hmm. to drink the eight ounces of four eight ounce glasses of water. And then now, before I get in the water in the wintertime, when the water drops to about 52 or 54, I was drinking like a 16-ounce glass of water just to be hydrated and realized that it was really dumb, that it was cold water. And so I was dropping my temperature before Mm -hmm. I even got in the water. So now I'm drinking a big glass of warm water before I get in the water. And just those little tiny things, but they all make a difference. And it's sort of like, you know, when you just know how to push off the wall a little bit better or you turn a little faster Mm -hmm. or you don't look here. Same kind of thing with the open water swimming is there's just little things that you learn that allow you to do a little bit more.
0: Well, and life is that way as well. Right. It's a great lesson for life is that if you're trying to be the best you can be, it's like those the better you get, the more incremental and tiny those those refinements are exactly but But they're necessary
1: they're necessary but at the same time I think it's so important to give yourself space to not quite make it there and to reevaluate and to relax about it too I mean because you can't be uptight about it the whole time if you're you know when you're training there's this this routine that you go through and certain things you want to achieve but there's also something to say for relaxing and resting to recover from what you've done. And in the long time that I've trained, and even now, I will always take a, at least a day off a week just to do something different so that yeah. I come back refreshed or with a different mindset or something to think about. Because for me, swimming is a time to really think. You know, When I was writing this book, I was waking up at 3 in the morning, full of ideas, mm-hmm. writing for four hours. Then going to swim and thinking about what I'd written, if, if it was what I wanted to say, and then reevaluating and coming back and editing it for a couple more hours, right. and then putting it aside, going on whatever whatever needed to be done. And the next day, I'd wake up at three morning again, uh-huh. ready to go. So I've never had that experience before, but I think it was because I was writing a story that was a really happy story at a yeah. time when things had not been so happy, you know, where the
0: world had sort of shut down. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a time where I could write something that was really positive. Something that you could celebrate and something that could uplift you as you were doing it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that makes sense. And it also goes back to what I was saying about finding that zen in the water, yeah. to finding, uh, finding a peace. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and you think you're in your own head and, and stuff are. gets worked out. Yes, you do. <laughs> stuff gets worked out. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is, a, this is a great time to, uh, to go back to uh, Tales of Al the water rescue dog Um, throughout the book. You also reflect upon your own stories and your love for dogs and the role that they played in your life. Um, You specifically, I want to ask you about a magical day where you went body surfing with, with three Newfoundlands (laughs) at Emerald Cove, I believe, right? in Laguna, which is one of the most beautiful beaches on the planet. Um, But you went body surfing with three Newfoundlands. I love the names. Otis, Pork, and Beans. (laughs) Describe the day. Body surfing with Otis, Pork, and Beans.
1: That hadn't been the intention at all. The idea was just to go swimming with them. So we had gone swimming. We'd swum about a mile, maybe a mile and a half. And they were right beside me. I mean... Otis was on one side, pork was on the other side, and Beans, Beans who was also called Beanie, she was behind me. And so it was the weirdest thing, though, is like swimming with your swim mates, you know, but they were they were head up and swimming, and I was swimming freestyle, and they stayed right with me, like I was part of the pack, and it was so much fun. So we came back across the bay, and I was just thinking, you know, how far can these dogs swim? Have they done this before? Mm-hmm. You know, are we pushing it too far? And so I finished the swim with them, and then they were looking at me like, like, don't you want to do this again? Like... Come on, okay. So I'm thinking, okay, let's go back <laughs> they out. They were worried about you. They, they were worried about me, but they, the waves were starting to come up. Uh huh. And so we went back out into the ocean, and they started body surfing with me, and <laughs> I had never seen this before. And so when Brian, the owner, came back from his holiday, I asked, you know, is this what they do? And he said, yes, all the time. Wow. They're the best body surfers. And so, but if you think about it. They were so perfectly built to be body surfers because the their chests are like heels, you know, and so they're streamlined underneath and then their paws are really big, like bear paws, and they're webbed. So they could feel and they could see and they could sense In the distance the line that you see when the when the waves come in close and then they would start moving and you could see them paddling and they were riding the waves it was crazy but it was so much fun and we body surf for i don't even know how long but there's a point where it's like, okay, you guys, this is not <laughs> you're making me tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. Let's go in.
0: <laughs> well, there are a number of those very charming and heartwarming stories, um, that you include in, in your book about you. And in that way, it's a bit of a memoir in that, in that it is, it is about you and your experience and love for dogs. Um, back in, back in Italy, um, you were, you were actually there when Al, um, went to her rescue dog certification test and, um, You mentioned in the book that Donatella, Al's trainer, um, was really nervous.
1: She was really nervous because if Al didn't pass this test, then there may be a year or two longer for them to have to wait until she'd be able to do it again. So there was a whole lot of pressure on Donatella to to see what happened. And I really don't want to give it away. No, don't. Because that's a big part of the story. Because the other thing is that, you know, you saw her working so hard with this dog. And they really wanted to achieve the level of being a certified water rescue dog. And they had to have that certification from the Guardia Costiera, which is the Italian coast guard. Yeah, right. And so... It was really interesting because, you know, the the Guardia Coast area is always training themselves. They're always getting prepared. Always prepared is our Coast Guard's motto. And so um, Semper Parentis is our Coast Guard's motto. They were the same way. So they wanted to make sure that if they had a rescue dog, water rescue dog, on their ship or their boat, that they were able to fulfill the task at hand. So there were a couple of crew uh, the captain and the and the crew the mate on board one of these boats along with us coast guard boats who were really skeptical of having al on board mm. and the thing that was so funny though is that you know part of the italian coast guard job is and same with our coast guard is to maintain the safety of the ports to make sure that ships that aren't don't go into certain areas and yep. boaters and yachters don't and there was one instance where I was on board one of the Coast Guard boats and a yacht yachtsman had strayed into the wrong water. So the Coast Guard was going over there to give the captain a ticket. And he was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> he was really ticked off. But after the Coast Guard man gave him the ticket, he then noticed Al. Oh. And suddenly he brightened up and then he started you know, speaking in Italian and yeah. asking about the dog and how long they had it and why it was there, and all the tension sort of just dissipated. So we I had met Admiral Angersano, who was the Admiral in charge of this part of the Coast Guard in Italy, and he absolutely loved the dogs because he saw them as a mascot, but alive mascots that people really adored. Yeah. And yeah. he encouraged this collaboration between the Italian water rescue, Italian water rescue dog school and the Italian coast guard. But it turns out that they didn't just work with the coast guard. There were times where they would work also with the Italian air force. And I just thought that is so cool because again, you have extra set of eyes on the water or on the land and, and they make a bit, and they make a big difference, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will, I will tell you that the, the ending is, is very, very satisfying. Um, and there are plenty of lessons about us and humans and dogs and that all we can carry with us. And um, it's, it's a wonderful story. Um, and to me, Tales of Al, and you tell me if I'm, I'm correct on this, but it's almost a love letter of sorts to dogs and
1: It is a love letter to dogs and to people and to celebrating swimming and the joy that we get from dogs and from each other, from being in the water and and doing swims together. And so one of the coolest things that happened when I was in Italy was that the dogs just wanted to swim with me. They didn't care if the water was wavy or hot or they were tired, it didn't matter. They just wanted to go swimming with me. And so, you know, when you have a swimming buddy, they're often like that, but sometimes they aren't. Yeah. And so with a dog, you just knew you could go now and you'd have that enthusiasm to get you going and keep you going. They just love swimming. They just loved it. And it's, it's but it's also so cool when you have a friend like that you swim with in the ocean yeah. or in a pool. If you can get back into a pool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I'm thankful to have my friends here that, that, that get you I out get there. to swim with. They get, me, get, they, out they get me out there, and, yeah. and we, we all have a great time. Well, Lynn, thank you again for being here, at, uh, preparing for this. It gave me a great excuse to re-explore your life um, through your books and to share some of your stories with everyone here tonight. So thank you again.
1: Thank you very much, John. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. you. Today, Lynn would like to leave you with a concise pearl of wisdom from her late father, Albert. He would tell her, do your research before you decide if something is possible. And that's some sage advice for all of us planning our upcoming adventures. In the meantime, for a fascinating read, go pick up Lynn Cox's new book, Tales of Al, the Rescue Water Dog. And while you're at it, check out Lynn's other seven books, including the New York Times bestsellers Swimming to Antarctica and Grayson. I'm John Moffat. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to give us your five-star review. And as always, tell your friends. Thanks for joining us and see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sports Life Balance.